Well, the situation for our text this evening is really messed up, as it often is with any of our passages that are connected with the Ten Commandments. Absalom was King David's third son, and what he was doing is he was staging a coup, a a, a usurpation of the royal throne, and he was doing it right under the nose of his father. He wanted his father's throne something that God had not granted to him. And the way that he went about it was initially here by breaking the Eighth Commandment. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. We first meet Absalom as we are introduced to he and his sister Tamar in 2 Samuel chapter 13. And we are also told about Absalom's half-brother named Amnon. Amnon. It was another one of David's sons. And Amnon found Tamar to be very beautiful. So much so that he lusted after her and he eventually raped her. And not only did Amnon defile her in the worst way imaginable, but he sent her away in hatred and he refused to marry her, which is what was required under God's law. Under the Old Covenant, this was God's way of providing for women. Absalom, Tamar's brother, hated Amnon for what he did to his sister, and rightfully so. We learn in 2 Samuel that King David had heard about what had happened to his daughter, Tamar, at the hands of his own son, but we are only told that David grew very angry. He didn't seek retribution, he didn't seek to punish his son, But Absalom would. Two years later, Absalom murdered Amnon, his brother. And then he fled into Geshur where his grandpa on his mother's side was the king. So after three years of exile, Absalom returned back to Jerusalem, but he would not get an audience with his father, King David, until two years later. And he finally finagled his way into his father's court by burning the field of one of King David's military officials. I know, this is a crazy story. There's so many disturbing layers to it. Uh, But whenever he was finally able to see his dad after five years of murdering his own brother, he bowed his face to the ground in humility and David, his father, kissed him. And it seemed that all was reconciled. That's the end of 2 Samuel chapter 14. Now, in our text this evening, 2 Samuel chapter 15, we should expect to see Absalom going to bat for his dad in the court of public opinion. But he didn't. He had it in his heart to conspire against his dad the whole time. So here's what he did. First, he got a whole bunch of chariots and a bunch of men to be a part of his entourage so that he would look impressive. And the scripture actually says that everyone found this guy quite handsome. So he had that going for him. He had this nice long flowing hair. But then he would stand at the city gate. And this is where people came to to entreat the king. This is where people came to to see the king, to be judged in certain matters. And so he would meet people out there. 
He would meet them, and especially the influential ones, and he would talk to them, and he would convince them that they were not going to receive justice from the king. They were not going to receive justice from anybody appointed by the king, but that he alone, Absalom, would deliver justice to them. He was campaigning right under his dad's nose, is what he was doing. And he, he likely used David's shoddy track record against him. Where was justice for Uriah? Where was justice for Tamar? So verse 6 tells us that Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel, the subjects of his own father. And in the last section of our reading, Absalom lies to his father, saying that he had to go back to Hebron to make good on a vow. Why? Why did he lie? It's so that David would permit him to leave the city, because this guy was under lock and key, having been a murderer. So David agreed, but the whole time, Absalom was looking Absalom was working behind the scenes to continue to conspire against his dad. He was sending word to people in other tribes to rebel against King David. And you know what? He actually made a heck of a run at the throne. He amassed a pretty sizable army. But eventually, King David would shut that down. David would win the battle against his son. And Absalom was killed by the same military official whose field he burned. It's poetic and tragic. I could preach a whole series of sermons just on the sins that are highlighted in this one little passage. But for our purposes tonight, let's focus on Absalom's slander of his father when he stood at the gate and whenever he won the hearts of people. I would wager that the way that we see Absalom's sin play out most in our society today is during election season. It happens in our country, it happens in our state, and even in our church body, sadly. It's election season in our church body. All the politicking, all the maneuvering, all the glad-handing, all the baby-holding rarely is ever about honest self-promotion and putting your qualifications out there so that they might be of benefit to your neighbor. All this stuff is usually about one thing, to tear down, to hurt or harm the reputation of another. And in so doing, the one who does the tearing down and the shredding of another's reputation gains righteousness in the sight of others. Absalom won the hearts of his dad's people at the expense of his dad's reputation. He was chasing something that God had said was not his. And our public figures do the same. They chase something that God has said cannot be gained in this way. They are pursuing righteousness in the eyes of the world through the blood of their enemies. Now what about us? Is anybody running for office here? Okay. I didn't think so. Most of us won't be public figures. Uh, we are not Absalom. We're not a candidate that's running in 2024. Although, if you want to put your hat in the ring, go ahead. I'd probably vote for you. But when God commands us 
To not give false testimony against our neighbor, it means, and we recited this evening, we should fear and love God so that we do not tell lies about our neighbor, betray him, slander him, or hurt his reputation, but defend him, speak well of him, and explain everything in the kindest way. What God ultimately wants to protect in this commandment is the reputation of our neighbor. This is something that I haven't given enough attention to as I've taught through these commandments. What the commandments are about are the gifts of God. It's about protecting God's gifts. The first commandment is about the gift of a God who has redeemed us. The second commandment is about the gift of God's name. The third commandment, it is about the gift of worship and the word and sacraments. The fourth commandment, the gift of parents and authorities. Fifth commandment, the gift of life. Sixth commandment, the gift of marriage and sexuality. The seventh commandment, the gift of property and possessions. And now here in the eighth commandment, we see how seriously God takes your neighbor's reputation. It's the gift of a good name. Why is it so easy for us, for example, why is it so easy for us to give in to the temptation of gossip? We absolutely know better, but even seasoned Christians have a way of succumbing to it. It's so easy to do it. We love doing it because deep down, we believe that it gives us righteousness. If we can shred the reputation of our neighbors, we get to drink the blood from it, and our own reputation draws strength from the mutilated carcass of another. That's a crude way of putting it, but that's exactly what's going on. It's what Absalom was doing at the city gates. Or, even when our neighbor is in sin... Rather than covering up those sins with mercy and forgiveness, and rather than speaking well of our neighbor anyway, we would rather expose those sins and wallow in them. Why? Because when we do, we don't have to spend any time examining any of our own sins. This is why we gossip. We love drinking the blood of others to gain righteousness. But God has said that try as we might, righteousness cannot be gained that way any more than Absalom could take his father's throne through his conspiracy and through his coup attempt. The only way that we get righteousness is through the blood of the righteous one, Jesus, who bled and died so that you and I would not be counted as sinners in the sight of God, so that we could actually have reputations as sons and daughters of the Most High King. When He bids you to come to His table, He is saying to you, Take and eat. This is my body, given into death for you. Take and drink. This is my blood shed for you. And what he's saying with those words is that here you have all that you need for life and righteousness through me. Therefore, you and I are free. We are free from the trap of having to prop ourselves up at the expense of others. 
Because the God of the universe has descended to us by taking on our flesh. And because He was openly mocked and shamed before the entire world, because His reputation was shredded to bits, and because He hung naked on His cross, you and I are covered by His righteousness and by His perfect record. We do not need to care about what the world thinks of us. We can walk according to God's law so that our neighbor's sins and our neighbor's faults are covered whenever we speak of him. We can preserve our neighbor's reputation because we know that the God who loves us has given that gift. I'm reminded of the time when President Obama ran for his second term against John McCain. I really don't care what you think about either of those men. It, it's, it has nothing to do with my point. But McCain was doing a rally somewhere. And he was doing a Q&A. He was, asking, he was allowing people to ask questions of him from the audience. And a lady in the crowd spoke into the mic and she started to make baseless accusations against the president, who was the incumbent in the election. And McCain promptly came to the defense of his opponent. And he said, no ma'am, no ma'am, just like that. And he cut her off. He said, he's a family man. He's a respectable man with whom I have some fundamental disagreements. And that's what this campaign is about. His instinct was to come to his opponent's aid and protect his reputation. This was, they were right in the thick of the election. And this was the move that he made. And I, I remember thinking to myself, that's how it's done. I don't know anything about the man's faith, but that is the Christian instinct. See, as Christians, we've been given all the righteousness that we need at the expense of Jesus. In Jesus, our righteousness... It never runs out. That well never runs dry. You are able to drink freely from the forgiveness, the mercy, and the grace. You are able to stand before the throne of your heavenly Father who calls you his own son, his own daughter, for the sake of the blood of Jesus. So as we continue in this life and as we are called to keep these commandments, may we hold out the righteousness of Jesus. May we hold it out to the world as our words give grace to all who hear and as we walk according to the way that our Lord has called us. He loves you. He has done everything for you. You need not fear the opinions of others. You need not fear protecting your own reputation at the expense of others. May God grant it to us all. Amen.